Thank you for tuning in to the podcast of Western Heights Baptist Church in Waco, Texas. We exist to exalt Christ, equip the church, and engage the community. For more info, visit whbcwaco.org. Well, hopefully, by now, you believe that God wants to use you to do something. He wants to use you as a deliverer. He wants to use this church as a deliverer. Now, you may think you're an ordinary individual, but the Bible says that God can do extraordinary things with ordinary people. This morning, as we continue our series in the book of Judges, we are going to talk about one of the the more popular individuals in the Bible, and especially probably the most popular judge as we deal with the book of Judges, as we talk about Samson. Uh, Go ahead and open your Bibles to Judges chapter 13 as we continue our series through the book of Judges under the heading, Can You Deliver? We're talking about deliverers that God raises up. Now, oftentimes you'll see the character of Samson portrayed in movies by Hollywood or whoever tries to do it in in, in a book form. Uh, They will picture him as some six foot four, 225 bronze tan with long flowing hair and ripples where people don't even have ripples. I mean, he is a, he is a fine physical specimen. And that's kind of the image that we have by Hollywood, by, by books that are written or by graphic pictures that are given. Uh, however, I don't really think that's what he looked like. I don't really think that he was uh, that type of individual. What I think is I think he was just an average guy. I think he probably looked a little bit more like me and a little bit more like you than we think. Now, why do I say that? Because everybody kept wondering, where does his strength come from? You know, if he was this fine physical specimen like Arnold Schwarzenegger of the old days or, you know, Vin Diesel or, or Dwayne Johnson, one of those guys, they, say, they know where the strength comes from. But they looked at this guy and said, where do you get your strength? And we know that his strength was found in his hair. So that, that I, I believe he was just a normal guy. Because I think that reveals even the greatness of God, even in a better way, that he could take some puny little 98-pound weakling and do great things through him. But the point is, you don't have to be big and strong to be used by God. You don't have to be some Hollywood actor or some Hollywood figure for God to use you. Uh, But God does want to use us. He, He wants to use us to be deliverers. But there seems to be a tendency in churches today that we don't want to step up to the plate. We don't want to be used by God. I remember reading about Paige Patterson, who was the former president of Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Fort Worth. And he made an observation about about liberalism that was creeping into society and into the churches. And he said he believed that the reason that liberalism was creeping into the churches and in society as a whole is because churches will not stand up to the spiritual laxity or to the moral and spiritual problems facing the world today. And he said that's what he thought. But then he changed. He said, but I've even thought about it more. He said, I think what it is that we're raising up a generation of spiritual wimps. Spiritual wimps. Now, I think he's right on target. Now, I'm not, I'm not a theologian. You know that about me. I'm more of a practitioner than I am a theologian. But I think he's, he's right on, on track with what he's trying to say. I think we are raising up a generation of people who are afraid to exert influence in their homes, 
in the churches where they attend, in the community where God has placed them, and even in the world where God allows them to live. They are afraid to stand up for truth. And I think it even goes one step further. I believe that we have pastors that will not stand up for truth in God's Word, and they will not confront the spiritual apathy that is running rampant in our churches. I believe this is a problem that we're running into in this world. Now, we're going to look at Samson, because I think Samson is a man of strength. He's a man that God used to accomplish mighty things. And we're going to look at the background of Satan, of Samson. Ooh, not the background of Satan. We don't want to do that. Although sometimes Samson acts more like Satan than he does God, and he does Samson, okay? So we're going to look at the background of Samson. And I think the steps that Samson took to be strong can be the same steps that we can take to be strong. Uh, we, can, we can be strong as we look at this. So we're going to look at these words today in Judges 13 under heading, Steps to Standing Strong. And I think if we were, we were take these steps, they can help us become strong and they can guard us from becoming a spiritual wimp in this world in which we live. The first truth I want you to write down is this one. Be aware of your culture. Be aware of your culture. Now, it would be easy for me to sit up here and rant and rave about the culture out there, the culture we live in. Because most of our, at least my generation, many of you in here, the culture in which we live in now has changed drastically over the last 20, 30, 40 years. It's changed drastically. So it would be easy for me to sit here and bash the culture out there. After all, they're not here to hear it. And so everybody would amen. Yeah, you tell them like it is, preacher. They need to hear that. Well, they're not here to hear it. So I think what I would rather do is talk about the culture of the church. Talk about the culture in which we find ourselves in. Because what you would discover is the culture that Samson was in had more to do with Israel than it did the Philistines as he was raised up to conquer the Philistines. The culture of God's people is the culture in which Samson found himself struggling. Look at verse 1 of chapter 13. This is the verse that we see over and over in the book of Judges. Look at what it says. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. Here's that downward spiral of rebellion that we talked about in the very first sermon. It's this downward spiral of rebellion that they constantly get themselves into. But there's something missing in this passage. There's something missing from the previous ones that we've been looking at. If you go and look at throughout chapter 13, there's not any evidence of them crying out to God. Not one time do they ever say, Lord, we've made a mistake. Lord, we repent. Come and deliver us. Now, why is that? They're under the longest oppression. They've been under 40 years. They've been under the oppression of the Philistines. But yet they're not calling out to God. They're not crying out for deliverance. How do we explain that? How do we understand what's going in? Could it be? Could it be that they become so accustomed to the culture around them that they assimilated themselves to the culture of the Philistines that they no longer felt they were being oppressed? They said, this is just the way it is. This is the, the society in which we live and we can't do anything about it. You see, Israel may have been materially blessed, but spiritually and physically they were oppressed and they didn't even notice it. They didn't even care about it. 
And the apathy of the Israelites toward both physical matters and the oppression in general is what really gets me. How can they be apathetic to what's going on around them? How can they not care of what's going on around them? It's hard to understand how people who have experienced God's grace, they've experienced God's goodness, they've experienced God's greatness, and how they can be unresponsive to what's going on around them. It doesn't make any sense. And if we go and we examine uh, verses 2 through 24, we look at it, we would find out that in the, in the evidence of Samson's family, how much they, they didn't care about spiritual things. The first thing you see, if you look at verses 2 and 3, we won't look at them, but in verses 2 and 3, the wife of Manoah, who is the father of Samson, she's told, you're going to conceive a child. She's sterile. She cannot have a child, but kind of a, a Sarah moment, God says, you're going to have a child. He said, but you need to be mindful of the dietary laws. In other words, she was probably like a good Texan. She ate bacon, okay? She ate bacon, she ate shrimp, she ate fried catfish, crawfish, ate all those good things that we eat, you know. Uh, he said, you need to be mindful of the dietary laws. You see, she wasn't doing it. It's written in the book of Deuteronomy. It's written in the book of Leviticus. This is the way you're supposed to live. This is what you're supposed to do. She didn't care about the dietary laws. But even goes further, if we go down through it, when, when Manoah hears that this angel of the Lord, which is God, uh, transfigured in, a, in that situation, uh, this theophany that they experienced, he hears that his, that his wife had been encountered by that. He goes, well, I don't believe you. I don't believe it. And then when the angel appears to him, he questions him. I don't really believe you're an angel. And he says, tell me your name. And the angel says, I'm not going to give you my name. My name is irrelevant. No, 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 I'm not really going to believe you until you give me your name. And then he tries to manipulate him. He tries to coerce him. And the guy says, no matter what you do, I'm not going to give you my name. But he's trying to manipulate him. He doesn't really believe it's true. And then the last thing we see, and this is all in verses 2 through 24. Uh, you can see that there. The last thing is they named their son Samson. It's not a biblical name. It's, it's, it's a name that has more to do with the deities around Israel, the, the Philistine deities that they worship. The name really means sunny boy. Little son is what it means. And it has more to do with the pagan gods that were worshipped in the area. And they named him Samson. Instead of honoring the theophany that they had of God, they decided to name him like after one of the deities that lived around them. You see what they've done? They blended their culture in with the culture around them. It shows that they had apathy for spiritual matters. They just did not care anymore. They had a total lack of interest in the things of God, and in particular, their relationship to Him. However, and it's a, this is a good word, out of God's own kindness and His own love for His people, and because he wanted his name to be honored, he sent someone to deliver them. Even though they did not cry out, even though they did not ask for help, he said, I want my name to be honored. He said, I want to show my glory, so I'm going to send a deliverer to you to set you free. Aren't you thankful that God did the same for you and I? Aren't you thankful that God sent a deliverer to you and me? Could it be ever more understood in the way Paul writes it in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, that God demonstrates His own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, 
Christ died for us. You see that? We didn't call out for him. We didn't cry out for him. We didn't look for a deliverer. But God said, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died for us. He sent a deliverer even when we weren't searching for that deliverer. Now, during this period of history of the judges, uh, there was a spiritual and a cultural seduction that was taking place in the world around them, which reminds me of what is taking place in the church today. What reminds me of what is taking place in the world today. Our culture is shifting further and further away from foundational truth. Our culture is shifting further and further away from Judeo-Christian principles that we were founded on. We're moving further and further from God. We're moving further and further from Jesus Christ as the only way, as the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through Jesus. And we're starting to move into culture that if it feels good, do it. Whatever you believe is okay because there is no absolute truth. Matter of fact, the only truth that there is in the world today is that there is no absolute truth. And this is the society in which we're finding ourselves today. Even the Christian community seems to be complacent and they seem to be apathetic towards spiritual matters. They have a term for it. They call it active complacency. Active complacency. Here's what they say. It says that we are busy, but we have no concern for the things of God. Look at That's what we do in church. We're busy, busy, playing church instead of being the church. We meet, we have activities, but we're not really involved in what the church is all about. We have apathy over spiritual matters. We think it's relegated to the book of Judges, but it's, it's right now living in this day and age. Many Christians today just don't care. They just don't care. They do not care that the people outside these walls are dying and going to hell. They don't care. They don't care about society as long as they're safe from it. And the fact of the matter is, they don't even want to be saved from it. They don't even want to, the church doesn't even want to be saved from the apathy. They don't even want to be saved from their complacency. They don't care. They are content. They are content with the way things are. As a matter of fact, I think there's a spirit within the church that says, this is as good as it gets. This is as good as it gets. It's the time of the judges all over again. Statistics are true. Yeah, we, can, we can denounce statistics all we want, but they don't typically lie. What we're finding out is where the church is really missing the boat is in the ages 23 to 38. 23 to 38 says that now that 40% of, of, of young adults, 23 to 38, do not even attend church, have nothing to do with church. That, they don't attend any time. The other 60% attend sparingly. Now, obviously, that's not, that's not indicative. I know there's some 23, 38-year-olds in here, and you're here. So they obviously didn't poll you. But the fact of the matter is, this is what society is saying. Here's the 40% never attend, but here's the thing. Ten years ago, that was 30%. You see what's happening? Every 10 years, it's another 10% that's not coming and being a part of church. And that 40% are raising their children not to be concerned about spiritual matters. It's just a matter of time. Matter of time. We're already living in a post-Christian society. Already. 
This is what's happening. Faith and practice, listen, faith and practice cannot continue without attendance. It can't. If people don't come, faith and practice dies. Faith and practice will not continue. And the problem is faith and practice is what gives people hope. Faith and practice is what, what inspires them to be more than they are. Now you might say, that's not a problem right now, but it's going to be a problem in the near future. It's going to be a problem in the near future. Listen, how can we impact the culture in which people live if they're not coming to church? How can we impact society if we can't even get them here? If we're not reaching them here, if we're not reaching them out there, how do we expect to change the world? How do we expect to change society? And, and I don't know about y'all. I can't speak. For, well, maybe I can speak for you. I'm the pastor, okay? No, I can't speak for you. I don't want to go down without a fight. Because I believe in it. There's a spiritual apathy that is rampant in our churches and in society today. You know what it's done? And I resemble this remark, okay, so don't, none of you take this personally. We have become a bunch of weak, flabby, and ineffective in bringing deliverance to people. Weak, flabby, and ineffective. We're not the strong men that we need to be, the strong women that we need to be. So if we're going to, uh, to be strong, if we're going to uh, have, have the strength, we're going to have to understand the culture in which we live. Second truth. Be assured of your calling. In verses 2 through 24, we see how God was preparing Samson's parents to bring this little boy into the world. No other deliverer in the book of Judges had more potential than Samson. Samson was gleaned from, from, groomed from birth to do that. Look at what it says in verse 5. No razor may be used on his head because this boy is to be a Nazarite set apart to God from birth and he will begin the deliverance of Israel from the hands of the Philistines. God had spent so much time on Samson, even from birth, because in a culture that doesn't want to be freed from its own sin, you have to be sure that God has called you to do what you're doing. As you look at the Old Testament prophets, Ezekiel specifically, Jeremiah is another one, Isaiah, but really specifically Ezekiel and Jeremiah. As you read their, 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 their prophecies, as you read that, they knew beyond a shadow of a doubt what God had called them to do. They had no doubt. And he called them the difficult task. But he said, I, they, they knew that no matter what happened, they knew that no matter what, what difficulty came about, regardless of what happened, they knew in their heart of hearts that God had called them. And so they could stand firm in the face of that. Now look at what it says about Samson. It says he's going to be a Nazarite. A Nazarite is a term that means this individual is to be consecrated or separated for God's service. He was dedicated to God's service. These are individuals that typically consecrated themselves for a specific purpose for a specific time. Now there were some restrictions placed on them. And I want you to remember these restrictions because we'll come back to them in the next couple of weeks. The restrictions are you can't drink wine or strong drink, you can't touch dead bodies, and you cannot get 
a haircut. Now look at Samson. Samson was called a Nazarite from birth. So all of his life he was set apart as a Nazarite. What does that mean? He's going to be different. That he's going to be unique. He is going to be set apart for God's purposes. Does any of that sound familiar? Have y'all seem to have heard this somewhere before about being set apart, about being set aside for God's purposes? Listen, God has called you to be set apart. God has called you to be unique. God has called you to be special. And if you're going to stand strong against the culture, you've got to know that God called you. You've got to be able to stand firm in that. Listen to the way Peter says it in 1 Peter 2.9. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of Him who called you. I love that part. It says, called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. But I love that. You see the purpose? He says, look, you're chosen, you're a priesthood, you're a holy nation, you belong to God. What is your purpose? To declare the praises of God. That's your purpose. To declare the praise of God. Peter follows it up in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 10. He's still writing these people who are strangers and aliens in the world. This is what he says. Therefore, brothers, be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure. Let me ask you a question. Are you sure of your calling? Are you sure of your calling? Listen, I'm not just talking about are you called to be a child of God. I pray that you are. I pray that you are called to be a child of God. Are you called to be a part of this church? Because that's just as important. The Bible says we're all a part of the body. If you don't feel that you're called to be a part of this body, then guess what? You're not going to function in the body. You've got to feel called. I believe God has called me to this church for a reason. You have to say that. You have to believe that. Just like I feel God has called me, He needs to be calling you as well. The Bible says that you are to be holy. You are to be consecrated to God, dedicated to God for His service and for His purposes. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. He goes, as a prisoner for the Lord. Stop right there. As a prisoner for... Did you know that a prisoner has no agenda? Did you know a prisoner has no freedom? That a prisoner doesn't so say, I will do this. The prisoner says, No. I'm at the mercy of the one who's imprisoned me. Paul says, I am a prisoner for the Lord. You have no rights. You have no authority. Your rights and your authority come from God and God alone. He says, as a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Of the calling that you have received. Do you see it? Do you see what the Bible is trying to say? The Bible is trying to say that you're counter-cultural. You're living opposite of the culture of the world. You're opposite to the world's system. You're special. You're unique. Now, just because Samson knew he was different, and just because he knew that he was set apart, it doesn't mean he automatically obeyed, as we will find out next week. He didn't do it. But if you're going to stand strong in a culture that is corrupt and compromising and resists everything that you stand for, you better be sure of your calling. You better be sure of what God has called you to do. Peter says, you're not of this world. You're an alien. You're a stranger. You're just passing through. Listen, 
I'm not, well, I know I would not be a pastor unless God called me to do it. Let me tell you something about being a pastor. It ain't for wimps. It ain't for wimps. And I'm one of the wimpiest people you know, okay? It's not for spiritual wimps. I tell you, if you feel God is calling you in ministry, I will tell you, I will counsel you, is there anything else you can do and be happy and be content? Because if you can, run. Run. But because I know God has called me to be a pastor, I stand on that. Third truth will be finished. Be agitated in your conscience. Be agitated in your conscience. Look at verses 24 through 25. The woman gave birth to a boy and named him Samson. He grew and the Lord blessed him. And the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him. It began to stir. And that word stir means to agitate. It means to disturb. It's the same word in the Old Testament that was used of of Nebuchadnezzar when he was agitated by his dreams and he had to have somebody to interpret his dreams, which was Daniel, by the way. It's the same word used of Pharaoh who was disturbed, who was agitated by his dreams and he needed somebody to interpret his dreams, which was Joseph. That's the same word there. And it says that the Spirit of God was agitating Samson. He was bothered by what he saw. He was bothered that his own people were no longer bothered by the oppression that they were under. They didn't care. And it bothered him. It stirred his heart. Doing that. Probably many of you are familiar with the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Y'all know about that story? Okay, let me just refresh your memory. Remember in the book of Genesis that God destroyed the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. But before He destroyed it, He rescued from it Lot and his family. He rescued it from that. But, but listen to what was going on in Lot's mind as God delivered him. This is in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. It says, Lot was distressed by the filthy lives of lawless men. For that righteous man living among them day after day was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. He was tormented. He was agitated. He looked around him at the the culture and the society and his soul was tormented by what he saw. It's the same idea used over in Acts chapter 17. When the Apostle Paul goes to the city of Athens and it says this, while Paul was waiting for them, this is his traveling companions, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed. He was agitated to see that the city was full of idols. Full of idols. But see, Paul, it wasn't enough for Paul just to be agitated. It wasn't enough just for Paul to, to be distressed. It says, verse 17, he went about to do something about it. He says, so he reasoned in the synagogue... The synagogue is the, is the church of the time. He reasoned in the church at that time. He reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks. God-fearing Greeks are those who had, had adhered to the Old Testament teachings. Uh, they, they believed in those teachings, so, so that they were God-fearing. So he reasoned with the Jews and, and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace, day by day, with those who happened 
to be there. And I love what it's later on he goes on and he confronts the children, the people of, of Athens at that great sermon on Areopagos and Mars. And he goes, he goes, people of Athens, people of Athens, I can see that you're very religious. You have idols, statues to all the gods of the world. You even have a statue to the unknown God. It's him that I want to proclaim. Him. And then he preached to them what? The resurrection from the dead. He preached about Jesus Christ and him crucified and him risen from the dead. And the minute he brought up the resurrection, they wanted to kill him. They wanted to get him out. Why? Because the Bible says that the cross and the resurrection is foolishness to some and a stumbling block to others. Listen, my friends, when we preach Jesus and we preach him crucified and we preach him resurrected and we do it in a dead and a dying church, guess what? It's a stumbling block and it's foolishness to people. Because they don't believe it. Because the Bible says the same power that rose Jesus from the dead lives in you. In you, that same spirit. You see, Paul was agitated, but he was so agitated about it that he had to go and do something about it. Let me ask you a question. Are you agitated this morning? Are you agitated? Are you agitated at the culture's continuing decline are you agitated at the declining church? Are you agitated that the attendance continues to drop? Are you agitated with what you see around you, even in the church of Jesus Christ? Have you ever looked at the culture in which you live, the culture in which you serve, and something stirs you to the point that you are compelled to do something? You see, it's not enough just to, to think about it. It's not enough to be aware. You have to do something. I'm talking about are you so stirred in your spirit that the Spirit of God comes to you and you look at the culture and the Spirit of God says, that ain't right. That ain't right. And He leads you to do something. You ever wondered why People spend their whole lives serving people who are disfranchised, that don't fit in, the down and outs of society. Wouldn't it be much easier to do something else? You ever wonder why they do that? It's because the Spirit of God has agitated them, has stirred them to the situation. You ever wonder why missionaries will leave the comfort of America and go serve with a pagan people group and might even die? It's because the Spirit has stirred them, has agitated them. How about this one? You ever wondered why pastors go to churches and challenge the status quo? It's because the Spirit has agitated them. Has agitated them. They said, this is not right. This is not right. The Spirit of God could be stirring you even now. The Spirit of God could be stirring you this morning. And the Spirit of God is challenging you to do something extraordinary. To do something that's amazing. To do something that's different. Listen, you cannot be controlled by the Holy Spirit and sit idly by while people destroy themselves. You can't do it. You can't be controlled by the Holy Spirit and, 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 and just not care that people are dying and going to hell. You can't do it. You have to speak boldly. 
You get stirred in your spirit to go and make a difference in the world where God has placed you. Listen, our battle is against the enemy of our souls. That's what the battle's with. And Satan, Peter says that Satan is a roaring lion looking for those that he may devour. That's who our battle's with. But more, more than not, what, what our greatest threats to the gospel, our greatest threats to, to changing the world, our greatest threats to the culture in which we live is the carnality in the pews and cynicism and apathy. This is what was going on in the time of the judges. Just because your culture may look peaceful and it looks like everything is going on and you say, oh, let's just sing Kumbaya, it will be great. It doesn't mean that everything's peaceful. There is a war going on. And it's a war for the souls of men. And for the soul of the church. There's a war going on. As in the days of Samson, many people today are unaware that they need to be delivered. They've been blinded. They've become complacent. They've become apathetic. And guess what? That's where you come in. That's where you come in. As a person who's been saved by the grace of God and empowered with the Spirit of God. The kingdom of heaven is counting on you. The church needs people that will not go AWOL when things get hard, things get difficult, and things get nasty. You can't do it. He's counting on you to do that. Listen, this is God's plan A. He didn't have a plan B. When Jesus ascended in heaven, and I imagine this is, you know, uh, this is poetic license, okay? I imagine that the, everybody gathered around him and said, okay, what'd you do? He said, well, I went, I, you know, I conquered sin, I conquered death, and I left it in the hands of the people. Well, what happens if they don't do it? What's your plan B? I have no plan B. That's it. That's it. And he left it in the hands of a church. He left it in the hands of a body of believers who were saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ and not of works. And we're flawed, and we got faults, and we got failures. We've all got our own ideas, our own, our own egos. We all got our own selfish plans. And God said, yeah, <laughs> that's who I'm going to use. That's who I'm going to use. But listen, if we will all come together behind the gospel, if we will all come together behind the gospel of Jesus Christ, God can do extraordinary things with ordinary people. He can do it. I believe that. I've lived my whole life preaching that and teaching that. I believe that. God needs men and women, boys and girls, young and old, to stand strong for Him. That's what He needs. So the question is, are you up to it? Are you up to the challenge? Are you up to the task? And I guess ultimately the question is, will you deliver? You see, it's not, I know the title of the series is, Can You Deliver? But that's really not the question. The question is, will you deliver? Will you stand up for those who can't speak for themselves? Will you share the gospel with those who do not know they need it?
Will you stand strong in your faith and communicate that everybody needs Jesus? They just don't know it yet. We have a tremendous task in front of us, a tremendous opportunity. I believe in my heart of hearts. I believe this since the first day I was called here that we are strategically located in Waco, Texas. We have some of the poorest, uh, uh, the poorest in our community. Guess what? We have some of the wealthiest in our community. We can be a bridge. We can be a bridge to those people. We can reach Woodway. We can reach Hewitt. We can reach those across the lake. We can reach those right here in some of the poorest apartments, some of the poorest homes, but also in some of the wealthiest communities in our city. What a unique opportunity God has given to us. It is not an accident that we are here. It's not an accident. So the question is, will you deliver?